we are continuing in our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you don't have a copy of your, uh, your own copy of the Scriptures, I'd encourage you to pick up the uh, Pew Bible there in front of you. We're going to be on page 684. And one of the things that we find as we deal with the Sermon on the Mount is um, Jesus, like a battering ram, wants to punch a hole through self-righteous externalism. People who on the outside want to appear righteous, but it's all a sham for the purpose of looking better, looking religious. And so Jesus has addressed some really serious issues. He says, yes, you need, to be, you need to be righteous on the outside, but that righteousness on the outside needs to flow from something inside. Your attitudes, your motivations. And so he's talked about really important interior issues. On the inside, we need to be humble. And not just humble about ourselves, but we need to be humble in relationship to others, and we need to be humble in relationship under our Creator, King, God. He says, as his disciples, we need to have a serious desire for righteousness, for mercy, for purity. And then he's talked about the kind of impact that these kind of people will have on society. They'll be salt and they'll be light. And then he moves into his commands. He talks about uh, him coming to fulfill the scriptures, that we should not take scriptures lightly. And then two weeks ago, we talked about his commandment to not be angry, that anger leads to murder because the intent behind both is to hurt another person. And he says, don't be angry. And then today, he moves into a very serious and difficult topic for us to wrestle with. He dealt with anger, which leads to killing. And now he deals with the topics of adultery and divorce, which kill marriage and family. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, the the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching, two of the commands that he gives consecutively address the issue of marriage and family. That's important. He's trying to get our attention about something. And it's this, that marriage is God's idea. He thought of it. We think we have the right and the opportunity to rewrite it and redefine it as we will. But the truth is that marriage is God's idea. And one of the things that's important for us to reclaim as the people of God is that His design for marriage and for sexuality is good. It's to be reveled and delighted in, kind of like the fire pit you have in your backyard. And you break out your little camping chair, and you you take your little coat hook, and you unfold it, and you get your little marshmallows, and you sit in your camping chair, and you enjoy that fire. And you you roast that marshmallow, and then you get some graham crackers and some chocolate, and they make you a s'more. Man, that's good. Man, I shouldn't do that right before lunch. Um... I'll I'll preach faster now. Um, I'm hungry. That fire in the fire pit is a very good and and blessed thing. But you take that fire outside of the fire pit, and you're going to be calling your homeowner's insurance policy. Because that thing that was designed to be a blessing and to be beneficial becomes very destructive once it gets outside the boundaries that God intended. It gets downright destructive. So friends, please know, I fully understand how sensitive a subject this is. When Jesus has been addressing things in the Sermon on the Mount, most of the things that he has talked about tonight, to uh, to this point, have been safely anonymous and internal. 
how do you really evaluate someone's attitude? I mean, you can always tell on the outside what somebody's attitude is, perhaps with some degree of accuracy. But divorce? That's obvious. That's observable. Everything else has been conveniently hidden from view. And now Jesus gets a little bit more serious. And he deals with a topic that's just hard to deal with. So we look at this passage, we'll see that Jesus offers some very hard and very difficult teaching. Do you know what else we know about Jesus? He's also the one who says that when you're weary and broken and you've labored hard and things have been difficult, that he's the one that gives you rest. He's the one that gives you grace. That he's the one that gives you peace. That he's the one that forgives you. So we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount. One of the requirements for disciples is to sense one's own spiritual poverty, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to know that you mourn over your sin. Who who feels this more than a person that's been in a failed relationship? Who senses their spiritual poverty more than someone who has been in a relationship that has not worked the way that God says it should ideally work? Today, I'm... Uh, perhaps a little bit personally apprehensive because I have to find a way to balance the severity and straightforwardness of what Jesus says with the infinite gentleness with which he loves his people. Because there's a lot of people that have been hurt uh, by the way the church has talked about it. Not the truth, but the way that they've talked about it, the attitude with which they've talked about it. And so I want to balance that. The hardness of what Jesus just says with the compassion and the great grace that he gives to both married and divorced people to be his disciples. So pray with me as we begin. God, I pray that you help us to balance this, that you help us as your disciples not to interpret the Bible in light of our experience, but to interpret our experience in the light of your truth. God, help us. May your spirit uh, superintend, guide, and guard the things that are said here today. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, I think, as I said, on page 684 in your pew Bibles. And uh, we're going to look at really these two commands, consecutive commands that Jesus gives. And he begins by telling us, first off, off, that marriage must be protected by the pursuit of purity. Marriage must be protected by the pursuit of purity. He begins in verse 27 with a statement. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That doesn't require any interpretation. If you can read, you can understand what that means. He says, adultery, don't do it. Big cross sign through that. Don't even think about it. And he's moving into this section where he's really dealing with two of the most destructive forces known to man. It's not earthquakes. It's not tsunamis. It's not tornadoes. It is lust and it's divorce. And I'll ask the question rhetorically. What has caused more pain and heartbreak than those two issues? To have... Uh, dealt with the unfaithfulness of someone who is supposed to be caring and loving, or to deal with the aftermath of a relationship that has gone down in flames. There are few things that have matched the destructiveness of unbridled lust and broken relationships. The thing that is really tricky for us is the minute we begin to talk about morality, we have to be prepared for the rest of the world to mock and scorn the standards that we think the Bible upholds. Are you willing to do that? Because listen, in my opinion, it's not going to get any easier to hold to a biblical morality. It's going to get difficult. You think about the last 50 years. 
we have created a problem related to marriage and family by the divorce culture. Now, within our culture, there are people that have a different definition of what marriage is that have just piled onto the problem that we have already created with our no-fault divorce. Now we have people that are trying to redefine whether marriage is man and man, woman and woman, man and boy, whatever. And so there are huge issues here because we live in a day of unbridled passion. If it feels good, do it. Because in our mind, marriage, or specifically sexuality, love, is an issue of biology, not of morality. The Bible says that's not true. Sexuality is an issue of morality. And so Jesus says, hey, you want to talk biology? I'll talk biology. And he says, here's here's what it is. The heart of the issue is the heart. The heart of the issue is the heart. Look what he says in verse 28. He says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I have four kids, and on the way to uh, church this morning, they know what divorce is. They know what divorce is. That big A word, not quite so sure what that was. Adultery, what's that? Now, my five-year-old has no clue. My seven- and eight-year-old did a little bit better. My 12-year-old said, Dad, you're talking about that in church? I said, yes, do you know what it is? And after she blushed, she said, It's doing something with someone that you're not supposed to do. That's a good G-rated definition, isn't it? We'll kind of leave it there. Caleb, on the way to church this morning, um, I was a youth pastor in North Carolina, and I worked in an admissions office at a college. And I happened to be dating um, a young lady who is not my wife. And uh, working in the admissions office, they decided to take a picture of me and my girlfriend and turn it into a poster and send it all over the country, and we broke up a week later. It was in my church. It was everywhere. It was in Hardee's. It was in McDonald's. And my, um, my grandmother um, can't tell the difference between that girlfriend 22 years ago and Marcy. And she, <laughs> she kept the poster. <laughs> And uh, she has just removed, moved into kind of a, an assisted living environment. So she's cleaning out stuff and decided to bless me by sending this poster that I have not seen and don't want to see 22 years. And so we're driving to church this morning, and I'm trying to explain to the kids what we're talking about. And Caleb said, real seriously, Dad, have you done adultery? I said, why? Because you got your picture taken with somebody that's not mom. You are throwing a Frisbee with somebody besides mama. (laughs) Jesus says here, don't kid yourself into thinking that you are righteous just because you have not physically consummated the lust of your heart. He says, you want to talk biology? Listen, it's not so much about the physical stuff. It is the attitude of your heart. And he says, listen, it's not just an issue of married people. Look what he says in verse 20. I tell you, everyone who looks at a wife... No, everyone who looks at any woman, married or single, looks at her lustfully, has committed adultery with her in his heart. This word for look is not kind of the casual glance, like, hey, there's Cecil. Hey, there's Chris. It is a present, active participle, which means continued, intentional, prolonged looking. A good English word would be staring. 
So you know the guy that kind of sees the lady in the red dress walking the opposite way, and he kind of turns around and walks into the stop sign? That's that kind of looking. You can't help seeing, but you can help staring. And Jesus says the person who is looking is, is, is looking for the purpose of lusting for her. He's staring for purposeful, sinful, sexual temptation. He's fantasizing. He's thinking things that he should not be thinking about besides anyone but his spouse. It's not right. And Jesus says, be warned for that. And so Father, on Father's Day, would you at least be honest with yourself and admit that when you are awake and your eyes are open, every attractive, or for that matter, half-attractive woman that passes by you is a living illustration of the danger that is out there for you. Because you don't wake up this morning and say, hey, I'm going to lust today. You know, I'm going to pick up milk, I'm going to drop the kids off at at preschool, and I'm going to lust. It happens. Unpremeditated sometimes. And the Bible says, don't do it. Jesus' command to say, don't even look at her lustfully in your heart, shows us how much we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not hunger and thirst for some perverted fantasy. To be drawing water from someone else's well when he has given you everything that you need. And so thankfully, Jesus provides a solution. He's realistic, fellas. He says, if lust is a problem for you, there's a solution. And what he, said, what he calls for is amputation. Not a simple band-aid. Look what he says in verse 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away from you. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here's what he's saying. Radical, decisive, emergency surgery is required. Gouge your eye out, cut your hand off. Why? Why does he say this? Do you see it here? He says, because your life is at stake. He says, it's better for, one, for you to lose one part than your, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now listen, I believe that once someone is saved, they are always saved, if they're truly saved. Anyone who can continue in unrepentant sin proves that their confession of faith was bogus. And he's saying, if you continue lustfully looking and never checking it, never repenting, you are are proving that you did something religious, but there was no regeneration, no born-againness that happened. You're not even putting up a fight. And he says, be be, be warned that this is a problem. And the present life that you have right now is not the only life that you have. He says, cut off the hand. Lose the eye. Because it's better to enter into life missing one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You go, wow, this seems drastic. Jesus is crazy. He's telling me, poke my eye out, cut my hand off. Isn't this a little overboard? Well, let's suppose today you walk around, you step on a nail. And uh, there's something on that nail. I don't know what it is. Just hypothesize with me here. You step on a nail, and there's a tremendous pain shooting up through your foot. And you end up going to the emergency care or urgent care place, and they say, I don't know what you stepped on, but whatever this is, if we don't act quickly, 
you, you will die. We need to cut your leg off. What? This just happened two hours ago. Cut my, cut my leg off. What do you mean? If we don't do it now, we're, we're, there's worse things to come. Would you think that's drastic? Would you go, hey, why don't you hold on a second? I'm going to get a second opinion. Second opinion? You don't have much time. And the truth is, you might not realize it at the time, but a year down the road, when you realize what might have happened, what seemed drastic was actually very merciful. They saved your life. Because to dilly-dally would be deadly. To say, hey, Doc, why don't you just start with my toes, and let's see if that's okay. Halfway measures would create havoc. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't, you need to be willing to give up anything necessary to win the battle with sin. What value is it if the result is that you go to hell? What benefit is the passing pleasure of sin? He's saying it's better to limp into heaven with one foot than to leap into hell with both. He says, be serious about the battle with sin. Prepare yourself for eternity more than enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. A good illustration of this, we have a cat that has adopted us. We, we did not adopt him. Cats are good target practice, you know. Um, <clears throat> now, that the, now that the weather's kind of nice, we have a little patio, a little deck, and we like to eat on the, on the deck. And so we have the whole family out there. We've got, you know, great little sandwiches, whole little smorgasbord of food. We're going to have a great time. And the cat decides to join us. Except he decides to bring his own food to the family picnic. He, he has caught a, um, I guess it was a little bird. He's, he catches mice. But um, I have to be really careful in saying who screamed the loudest, but it wasn't any of my kids. Because the cat decided to join us with a um, victim that he hadn't quite killed. Why? He wanted to play with it. That's why you don't play with your food. It was disgusting because he had maimed it, halfway killed it, but left it alive enough so it could kind of flutter around with one arm so he could chase it again and pounce on it. And men, for you the challenge is this. We think that we can control our lust. We play with it. We keep it alive and we let it kind of flit around a little bit and we have fun with it. But the truth is, when you let that genie out of the bottle, you will find that your lust will control you way more than you will ever control your lust. And the Bible says you are an idiot to play that game. That's a Greek, that's a Greek term. You can look it up. Um, he says, don't do it. You are the prey. You think you're the cat playing with the thing? No. Lust is the cat, and you're the thing. And you'd better run. You better get away. So here's, here's the question. It comes down to this. Jesus is saying this is a hard issue. Um, he's not literally calling for us to poke our eyes out or cut our hands off because um, here's the news. All the men in this church would have no hands and they'd be blind. Is that true? If we were to take the Bible literally, we'd all look like pirates on Sunday morning. We'd be poking our eye out because we'd be looking at things. We'd be dealing with issues that we don't. And so when we want to take the Bible literally, we've got to be very careful because Jesus is not here proposing mutilation because mutilation will never cleanse the heart. You can cut off all the body parts you want and still be impure. As a matter of fact, in the early church, uh, Origen and Basil of Caesarea, because of this passage, castrated themselves. They wanted to be serious about taking the Bible literally. 
I think I'd call for a second opinion on biblical interpretation before I'd go through that kind of drastic surgery. But I'm just saying, there have been people in the history of church that have been serious about this and thought Jesus' whole point was mutilation. It's not that. But here's the question. If the issue is the heart, what good does it do to poke out your eye or cut off your hand? If I poke my right eye out, what's going to happen? I'm going to use my left eye to sin. If I cut off my right hand, I'll use my left hand to sin. So what good is this? It's this. When a man, when a man commits infidelity, that outward action shows you a picture of his heart. And when a man is willing, spiritually speaking, to gouge his eye out, cut his hand off, spiritually speaking, go to extreme measures to maintain the purity of marriage, it shows something of where your heart is. So Jesus is not telling you, go get your hacksaw and have fun on Father's Day. He's saying, be serious about purity because what you do on the outside can show whether or not you are truly indeed hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's his first command. Protect the purity of marriage. Uh, Protect marriage by pursuing purity. But his second point is this, that marriage should be permanent by eliminating a divorce-on-demand culture. When we talk about divorce, there are many people that are confused and conflicted. But when you listen to Jesus' words, don't they sound rather clear? Isn't our problem with what we hear not with what we don't hear? Listen. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, it doesn't happen in our day and age when things that are legal are unrighteous. Just because man says that you can do it doesn't mean that God approves. And so when we talk about divorce, there are really only four possible interpretations. Four. First is that divorce and remarriage are absolutely permissible. Get divorced, get remarried, no constraints. Number two, divorce is allowed, but not remarriage. You can get divorced, but getting remarried is not a possibility. Number three, the strictest. No divorce means no remarriage. Number four, some divorce and some remarriage is possible. So how do we deal with this? Well, in Jesus' day, the most liberal opinion was out there. Divorce and remarriage was allowed for any reason. As a matter of fact, there were Jewish laws that said, if your wife burnt your dinner, you could find her indecent and divorce her. So um, ladies, I hope you cook well. You know, make a good meal for Father's Day tonight, you know, uh, because uh, according to Jewish law, uh, big problem. And he quotes Deuteronomy 24 about this uh, getting a written notice of divorce. See, they were told, you can divorce a woman for any reason, just make sure you do it legally. Get your piece of paper, and you're, you're right, you have fulfilled all righteousness by following the proper routine. Now, you're divorcing her for a stupid reason, but do it, do it the right way, and it's all okay. No, that was never the purpose or the intention behind it. Moses, by giving this concession for the written notice was not encouraging, and he wasn't forbidding, but he was greatly reducing it. He was saying, we don't need to get divorced for any reason, and we find this out in what Jesus says here, because Jesus gets back to the original intention. 
In the same way, Jesus is not providing for but preventing divorce because he's eliminating every other option for divorce except for sexual immorality. Jesus gets back to the original intention. In Genesis 2.24, we know the words that a man is to leave his father and mother and to cleave. Now, you haven't used that word in a sentence this week. I am certain. Um, To use a little play on words, your wedding day should be your welding day. Two discrete things joined together permanently. It talks of a permanent union of papers that are glued together. And what happens when you try to take those glued pieces of paper apart? You can do it, but you're not going to end up with two pieces of paper. You're going to end up with pieces of both. It's messy. It's, it's, It's bad. And Jesus is saying, that kind of brokenness, that kind of hurt, that's not his intention. That's not what he wants. The problem is, in Genesis 3, when sin entered, sin destroyed every relationship we have. It messed up the relationship with Adam and Eve. They blamed each other. It messed up their relationship with their kids. You remember what happened to their kids? One killed the other. You want to talk about a dysfunctional family. It messed up their uh, relationship with God. They hid from him. It messed up their relationship with nature. You remember Adam had to work the ground, and what happened after the curse? You'll work it by the sweat of your brow. Nature, our relationship with nature was messed up. And when we think about lust, adultery, divorce, think about all the commands that it breaks. First of all, it's idolatry. Because you are denying obedience to the Lord that you say you worship by doing what he says not to do. But I want her. Well, you can either have her or you can have God. You can't have it both ways. So worship God or worship your idol. That's what he says. It's theft of another man's spouse. And what causes all this? The sin of coveting. Wanting what doesn't belong to you. So there's at least three commands that you break by just simply committing this one. And so in Jesus' day, divorce was allowed for all kinds of trivial reasons. That's kind of like cutting off your arm because you have a splinter in your hand. Does that really deal with the issue? She burnt your dinner. Give her cooking lessons. Don't divorce her. Help her in the kitchen. Maybe you cook. It'd be breakfast for dinner every night, but hey, a simple dinner is worse than a broken relationship, isn't it? And so Jesus is saying, Just because you get a piece of paper doesn't mean you've avoided adultery. And this becomes clear in verse 32. He says, I tell you, everyone who divorces it, and it's written towards men, Father's Day, I tell you, everyone, every man who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Whose fault is it? The man's. Because here's what happens. In Jesus' day and age, women were not protected. The man gets a divorce. He's got a job. He's got a source of income. What happens to the woman? Stigma. Her dad doesn't even want her back. So what's she have to do? She's got to find someone to marry her. Well, who's going to marry a divorced woman in Jesus' day and age? Not the best class of man. And the Bible says that if you're the man that uh, divorces her for a bad reason, you are responsible for causing her to commit adultery because she has to get remarried to survive. And it's your fault. That's tough words. That's tough words. And, and, and it's not that she is committing adultery because she's divorced. She's, getting, she's committing adultery because she's going into a second marriage when in God's eyes, the first marriage has never been terminated because it hasn't been done for a biblical reason. Oh, listen. 
God's word is clear. Life is messed up. There are people that find themselves in this situation that they never wanted to be. And the attitude with which the church has spoken about this has not always been the most helpful. So remember that the God who kind of lays the law down on marriage is also the God that extends forgiveness and asks you to come to him. And, and so the truth is this. Divorce is never commanded. It is never endorsed. It is never blessed. But it is recognized as a reality and permitted. There's a huge difference between understanding that divorce is permitted in the case of unfaithfulness as opposed to saying divorce is commanded. Divorce is never commanded. It is never the option you want to go to unless you have to. Only when the unrepentant, immoral person completely exhausts the patience of the innocent spouse and the guilty one is unwilling and refuses to be restored through repentance should this be the option that you choose. Because once you choose it, you can't go back. You will always be that person. So the Bible has some serious words. But from Jesus' own lips, divorce is permissible in the case of infidelity. And if our doctrine of the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture means anything, the Apostle Paul, who is just as inspired to write Scripture as Jesus was, in 1 Corinthians 7, 12-15, some of you want to write that down, Paul gives another uh, allowance, biblical allowance for divorce, and that's abandonment on a spouse's part. When he abandons his or her role, he says, it's free, you're free to leave. You're free to remarry. And so Jesus would say, when someone breaks the marriage covenant by sexual immorality or abandonment, the innocent spouse is free to remarry. Not no divorce, no remarriage, but in some cases, divorce is per- permissible according to the scriptures and remarriage is okay. Now, it's, it's tough because you have to talk about all this bad stuff. You ready for some good news? Every statistic you have heard about divorce is wrong. How many of you have heard the statistic that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the outside world? Raise your hand. Anybody heard that? Just four or five of us? People say, you know what? Man, church people aren't any better because the divorce rate in the church is just as bad outside the church. People repeat that all the time. Horribly, completely untrue. They went back to the pollster who did the data. And what he had done is he had asked people, um, what is your self-professed religious affiliation? Well, like 70% of the people that he asked claimed to be Christian. He didn't ask anything about how do they actually, how do they actually demonstrate their Christianity. He didn't ask anything about religious practice. When you ask how frequently do you attend church and you find that someone is actively involved in church, you know what happens to the divorce rate? It's cut by 25 to 50% depending on how involved you are in church. Does that surprise anybody? If the divorce rate outside in the world is 50%, guess what it is the more active you're involved in church? 25%. Now listen, I'll argue anecdotally. In my life, I've served in five churches. I can count on both hands the number of people who are active in church that have gotten divorced. You know the people who get divorced uh, that are affiliated with the church? The people who are on the roll never come. And you know why they get divorced? If they're not serious enough to honor God by worshiping on Sunday, why in the world would they care to honor Him as Lord in their marriage? So do you want to hear the good news? Because y'all are in church on Father's Day. Going to church 
perhaps the single best thing you can do to divorce-proof your marriage. Doesn't that make sense? Because you have people who are going to slap you for being stupid. You got people that are going to come along and say, don't do this, bro. Don't cut your arm off because of the splinter. The 72%, I'll read the statistics, so you've got it. 72% of all currently alive who have ever been married are still married to their first spouse. You don't hear that on the news. 72% of all people currently married are married to their first spouse. And the other 28% who aren't includes widows and widowers. It's not the sky is falling. For people who are faithful to God, it's not that their marriages are immune but they're walking in a pathway where they have help from God to honor this institution that he has made. Six quick clarifying statements when it comes to lust and divorce. Number one, realize where lust will lead you. If you know that's not a destination you want to go to, pick a different path. And I hope you have the wisdom, if you can see clearly where your lust will lead you, that you'll choose differently. Number two, deal decisively with the real issue involved in your lust. That's your heart. You think you're going to be satisfied with her? No, then it'll be her, her, her. Find your satisfaction in God. Deal with your heart and find your satisfaction and rest in Him instead of in another person. Number three, recognize that God's design for marriage is a permanent and committed relationship. There's really no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That's what the Word says. Number four, understand that unbiblical divorce, what's unbiblical divorce? Any divorce that happens except for the reasons that Jesus and Paul mentioned. Unbiblical divorce complicates issues rather than cures problems. What happens when you're at each, other thro- at each other's throat? Man, if I could just be rid of her, life would be great. Really? Because now, according to the Scripture, you're an adulterer. Is that a fix? Unbiblical divorce will complicate issues rather than cure problems. Number five, in the Old Testament, the death penalty was the uh, punishment for adultery. And this is certainly not a recommendation for that to happen. Um, but listen... While the death penalty may no longer be in effect for adultery, the practical effects are the same. You've killed a family. You've created heartache. You've brought destruction. There might not be a physical life that has been ended, but there is something that has been destroyed. And number six, if you find yourself with something in your past that you regret, the best thing you can do right now is... Practice the best spirit-inspired faithfulness that you can. You can't go back and change the past, can you? Nope. I wish that you could. I would have never gotten my picture taken with that girl throwing a frisbee. (laughs) But the point is now to be as faithful in the marriage you are in, in the relationship that you are in now, and to make your ending testimony better than your past testimony to be faithful. And so if we're to be salt and light, be faithful. For those of you that are married, be faithful to your spouse. For those of you that are single here, be faithful for your spouse in the future. For those of you that call upon the name of the Lord, 
Be faithful to your gracious God. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help in being faithful to your commands. Thank you for loving us and for loving us enough to tell us the truth. God, help us to come to you with our uh, broken hearts. Help us to come to you with the pieces of what we have done with the life that you have given to us. And help us to know that you love us in spite of our mistakes and that through Christ you offer us new life. Help us to seek it. In Jesus' name we pray.